Good morning. Jason got me. I was expecting three verses at least. <laughs> Told me it was short. <laughs> I like that song. All right, we are in between in our teaching series. If you remember, we had uh, just finished up last week a long series, taking our time, tiptoeing through the Gospel of John. And uh, it was a wonderful time to dig deep into those words. And so I thought, well, what, are the, what do I want to do for these next couple weeks? And so we're kind of doing an off series. We're just doing something a little bit topical. And uh, hopefully there's some value in this. And the thing that I wanted to bring to us, I was thinking about how the Christian life, it just makes things better. How does that work? Because a lot of people, they look at us and they think, oh, they just got lucky or it's luck of the draw or they don't realize the actual concrete steps of obedience and faith that Christian people make to honor Jesus Christ and to embrace the wisdom that God makes available to us. So if you're visiting with us this morning, we are glad you are here, and I hope you enjoy your time with us. Enjoy the ride. Today we are talking about the wisdom of a good life. James 3.13 says these words, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. You see, faithful disciples of Jesus Christ who put the wisdom of God into practice in their day-to-day -day lives, they save themselves from a whole lot of hardship, emotional hardship, relational hardship, financial hardship. They have a purpose and a perspective that is greater and more satisfying. They have learned the peace and freedom of what it means to enter into the easy yoke of Christ. So the wisdom of God, of course, it has implications for all different areas of life. As wide and broad as human existence is and the situations we find, uh, that's how wide the wisdom of God goes. And so we read about God's wisdom in relation to finances or our sexuality or relationships, emotional health, ability to change. So I want to talk about some of these these next couple of weeks, and maybe we can pick this up and come back to it later on, because it's not luck, and it not, it's not magic. It's just not random chance that makes the difference for many of us. But for faithful disciples, our success has been tied to the blessings God bestows when we follow his commands and apply the wisdom that he makes available to us. He makes wisdom available to us, and he expects us to make use of it. Oh, they just got lucky earning that high-paying job, that salary. You know, they, they just won the, the marriage lottery getting her. Their, their good marriage, it's just, it's just chance. Are they, you know, those people were just blessed with, with good kids that weren't near as strong-willed as my kids are. 
just random kind of circumstances. And people, they act like it's just luck of the draw, and there's really not much we can do about living a successful, wise life anyway. It just kind of falls in your lap. Blessings, they float out of heaven. And I'm not saying there's not a mystery there. But I feel like it's important to address this because even a lot of Christians think this way. That successful finances or success in marriage or success in parenting are the result of some divine whammy of grace just thrown into our laps instead of clear steps of faith put into action. You see, the wisdom of God applied involves things like trial and error and mistakes and experimentation and persistence and research and effort. And God meets us in our steps of faith to provide us with grace. The grace of God is everything that God does for us that we can't do for ourselves. Now, I'm not implying that God doesn't bless everyone. He sends His righteousness out. The rain on the righteous or the unrighteous, He is a God of love. The gifts of God are extravagant. The way He spreads this out, it's, it's reckless, it seems to me. His generosity. But what I am saying is to the disciple of Jesus Christ who seeks wisdom, and applies it. There is for us blessing upon blessing. Jesus said it this way. This is kind of his conclusion to the whole Sermon on the Mount. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. What's the difference between the wise builder and the foolish builder? The difference is obedience. The difference is actually not just listening to it, not just having good thoughts about it, but actually applying it and putting it to practice in real life. The foolish builder is one who says, you know, this place is as good as any. It's all pretty much luck of the draw anyway. Why not, why not just do this right here? Versus the wise builder who seeks out a very specific kind of place, a certain kind of foundation, and only that kind of foundation will do. So you may feel like, you know, maybe I'm kind of late in the game for some of this stuff. There's not much left for me to do. It would have been nice to know this stuff 20 years ago. We all have that kind of thought, I think. And I just want to say, don't believe that lie. I don't know where you are. This is a big group of people. Where you are and the decisions that you've made, how wisely or unwisely you've lived. I mean, I see some of the fallout of our decisions that we make, but don't believe the lie that there is not a next step for you in wisdom. 
wherever you are, whatever your circumstance is, how you've failed, how you've succeeded, the Lord provides us with next steps. So think carefully about what that next step needs to be. But obtaining wisdom, let me just say, it begins from a place of humility. Wisdom comes from a teachable spirit. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the question we need to ask is, do you have a teachable spirit? Or do you have a list of excuses? What keeps you from having a teachable spirit? Fear of the Lord is leaving space for God. It's a recognition. You know what? Circumstances are always bigger than my ability to control. If I believe that, then I begin to open up myself to the help that I need. I begin to contemplate the possibility and the reality that there may be answers out there that I don't have. And when those answers come, maybe I shouldn't be so quick to set them aside. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Are you able to listen to advice? Are you able to listen to advice? So the life of wisdom comes from a teachable spirit. I would also say the life of wisdom is a life of discipline. We found this to be true in different aspects of life. He, the writer of Hebrews says these words, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So he's talking about circumstances in this context, but I think it holds true for all the ways that discipline comes to us, whether it's from God or from circumstances. This is, this is God-sent uh, discipline. Uh, or a discipline that we choose for ourselves. The wisdom holds true that if we apply ourselves to certain yokes, that they produce fruit. Look at sports. Look at learning to play a musical instrument well. There's a, di there's a discipline that comes with it, and it produces a certain kind of freedom. Have you ever heard someone who has been under a yoke of discipline to learn to play the piano? And then when they play it, it sounds like freedom because of the discipline that they put themselves under. I like the way my friend Dallas says, says what wisdom is. He said it's the settled disposition of the soul to act in accordance with knowledge. So if I lack wisdom, that means I'm not going to act on my knowledge. I'm not going to be able to accept the knowledge that's out there. I'm not going to be able to filter it. I'll not make a priority, but if I have a settled disposition in my soul that seeks knowledge, that looks for answers, if I have a willingness to accept and filter those things, that is wisdom. 
Well, there's a lot of different aspects of wisdom that the scriptures talk about. I said as wide as human experience, wisdom in our relationships, wisdom in uh, marriage, intimacy, wisdom for parents, caring for children, wisdom for children, caring for parents, wisdom for being single, wisdom for work and our vocation, wisdom on all kinds of interpersonal relationships, wisdom on taming the tongue and emotions, wisdom for setting priorities and fulfilling the work of God. The Bible has words of wisdom for every condition that is common to humanity. So for the rest of our time this morning, I just picked one of those, and I thought we would focus on it. And uh, hopefully next week we'll be able to turn the corner on this, and I want to talk about relational wisdom and wisdom in our marriages But for today, we're going to talk some about financial wisdom. So the rich young ruler in Mark 10, 17 through 22, uh, or 17 through 27, he asks Jesus uh, some questions, and Jesus asks this man to give up all that he has because he sees that this young man's accumulated wealth is the thing that is keeping him from the kingdom of heaven. And what he asks that young man, it seems impossible. And I think there's a contrast going on later on, because just a couple chapters later in Mark 12, 41, we have the story of the widow's mite, a poor widow who gives two small coins and casts her last sliver of worldly security into the hands of God. The last semblance of between her and starvation of, of, of order instead of chaos. She puts it in. So what is the common link between these stories? Both of these stories illustrate the concern of the Lord. The Lord is looking at the condition of the heart, is He not? The heart is what God is interested in, and the means we probably need to move that means we probably need to move beyond maybe more simplistic interpretation of texts that we might have concerning the way we should use and steward our resources. So uh, you know, we, we could tend to think, you know, all rich people are evil and all poor people are, are, are good in some way, or there's no such thing as a greedy poor person. And we know that that breaks down pretty quickly, but we still have these stereotype categories that we like to put people in. So I would just like to say, though, that the, the resources that God gives us, wealth that is rightly managed and invested can be leveraged for accomplishing kingdom purposes. The Bible doesn't say that money is the root of all kinds of evil, but the love of money. So there's some tricky things that we have to be aware of concerning wealth and the way we use wealth. Jesus talks very soberly about this and and some of these dangers associated with wealth. Accumulating, keeping, utilizing, maintaining, passing on. Those are all considerations about the way we use our resources that are very tricky sometimes and call for great wisdom. So much so that Jesus talks about people who are caught up in their wealth. It's like trying to serve two different masters. You will love one, you despise the other. He says you cannot serve both God and money. 
Money, if we will let it, it can have a hold on us. It'll take over our heart. It becomes, and this is not a rich person, poor person problem. This is an every person problem because we all have resources that we're responsible for. But then there's this curious verse I found in Ecclesiastes. He said, the sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man per- permits him no sleep. That means if it's got a hold in your heart, if you're trying to serve two masters, if you're split-souled, so to speak, you do not have rest. You do not have rest. Our stuff can take over our lives. Our stuff can distract us from the things that are really important. But let me also say that there, and I feel obligated to say that there is also a cost Not just the danger of having wealth, but there's also a very high cost with financial irresponsibility. So let me just tell you a few of the things that I was thinking about financial irresponsibility. It keeps you from generosity. It keeps you from knowing what it's like to bless others. Financial irresponsibility, it robs widows and orphans. It withholds from wonderful ministry opportunities. You are withheld from the blessing of participating in those things. Financial irresponsibility, it grows selfishness. It grows greed. Financial irresponsibility, it can harm your marriage or other relationships. I think anyone in this room could tell you about some story of how a relationship was harmed because there were money money involved in the way it was used, a lack of integrity, whatever. We all know that this is a very common human condition and predicament. So you need to be wise in the ways that you use your finances in your relationships. I think that goes without saying. Let me say a word about debt. I would say that it's a kind of slavery. Now you might think, Calvin, that's too harsh. That's too heavy to say that. But okay, Okay, but you need to realize that every credit card company, bank, financial, financial institution that's out there, they exist to try to make money off of you. So you need to have a plan. If you are a wise disciple of Jesus Christ, you need to have a plan about this stuff. Because let me tell you, in advertising, in credit, lending, banking, they have a plan. And what you don't want is for their plan to become your plan. The poor are always ruled over by the rich. So don't borrow and put yourself under their power. We live in a culture geared toward creating desire. All about creating desire is our advertising industry. You will not be happy until you have such and such. For me, the one that they really get me on, the the one that I love the most, and I read articles about it all the time. I like that Tesla Model 3 that drives you around by itself, that you can hit a summon button and it comes and picks you up at the door when it's raining or whatever. I just think that's the bee's knees. See, the sickness of our society is that we are thought of purely in terms of what you produce and what you you consume. What are, you, what are you producing? What are you consuming? 
And that's the, that's the way that the, the, the cog you've been made into in the view of our financial system. So if you don't have a plan, then others will give you a plan. They'll give you things you don't need and convince you that you need those things. 90 days, same of cash, same, same as cash, these, 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 these things that are out there. Don't worry about it now. You can take care of that later. Later comes. And then they'll show you how to use debt to pay for your debt. You can put it on a credit card. Some of us have accumulated so much debt that everything we do goes toward covering that debt. And it's disheartening. And it's exhausting. So let me stop preaching and go do a little bit of meddling here. Probably already crossed that line for a few of you. That's fine. The way that we are secretive about our finances, as Christians and disciples of Jesus Christ, we need to be able to talk about all of these things. If you have debt, make getting out of debt a priority. You know, I think it's legitimate to have a mortgage on a house or a piece of property, but uh, big car payments... Uh, just the thing, I want these, we want these nice things in our home. We want the comfortable furniture. We want, but that debt can get out of control. If you have debt, take your smallest debt and put extra, find extra resources, find ways to tighten the belt, pay for the smallest debt. And then when you get that paid off, don't just go back. You, You use all those resources to pay for the next one, a snowball effect, so to speak to take care and knock that debt out. We do not want to be in debt. So uh, there are several ways that we need to be very careful. I mean, we have to have transportation. We need certain things. We've got to find ways to do it. Just be wise in doing that. And uh, when it comes to adding monthly expenses that just build up, I knew I had a neighbor who couldn't pay for his mortgage and the money would just disappear. And he had like... going to cable and internet with all the channels. He had like a hundred and some dollars a month going to a car wash membership. It's nice. He can have anyone wash his car and vacuum it whenever he wants. But that kind of stuff, when it takes away from the monthly expenses, we need to learn how to live more frugally than that. We need to know how to tighten our belt and live responsibly. I feel obligated to say, too, as someone who's been through a lot of college and a lot of higher education, uh, college debt is a racket if you don't know that. You need to be wise young people in the ways you figure out how to pay for your college. Because if you're getting a liberal arts degree or something like that, I'm not trying to pick on liberal arts students, it's just the ones I happen to see, who have been shackled. $50,000, $80,000, $120,000 in debt, they can't find a job, they're flipping burgers, or this place, that, or the other, they're trying to defer these loan payments, financial higher education institutions are there to make a lot of money, and it takes a lot of money to run those organizations, but if you are wise, there are ways you can seek and find education that will not put you in huge debt slavery. Uh, And I think just let me say, don't buy on credit if at all you can help it. Find something you want, make a goal, save for it on the front end. Save for it on the front end. 
Okay, so let me move on. The debt of slavery. Let me talk a little bit about the wisdom of savings. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provision in summer and gathers its food at harvest, Proverbs 6. You know, I realize there's no one-size-fits-all model for this. Some people have a special calling to relinquish control of large amounts of wealth all at once. We have that example in Scripture. But wealth managed correctly with godly wisdom can produce consistent resources available for kingdom work over the course of many years. As a younger man, I really romanticized people like Francis of Assisi. He just walks away from everything. There's a beauty of it, and it it flies in the face of people who are enslaved in their hearts for love of wealth. And so we need to hear that voice. But that, as a, as a young Christian, I, I really romanticize that. That's the way that Christians are. And Christians who have accumulated wealth slowly over the course of many years or whatever, you know, they have a lower level of faith and trust than someone who depends on God for everything. That's the way I built it in my mind. But when we give up stewardship of resources, those resources don't simply cease to exist, do they? They end up being used and managed by others, usually managed by people or companies that do not have a kingdom agenda, a kingdom agenda of any kind. They don't think when they use those resources, how am I honoring God with this? They don't think, how can I advance the work of the kingdom of God when I use these resources? So think about your life this way. You've been given... You've been given a gift of a certain number of years, a certain number of days. I can't figure out how God distributes this. Some get five years. Some get a hundred years. He just distributes this out. And it, it doesn't make sense to me why this person gets this many years and why this guy who's a rascal, everyone knows he's a rascal, he lives 95 years and dies with a smile on his face. Everyone gets a gift of years. We don't know the reason why, who gets what. And we are all entrusted with a certain number of resources. Some of us are better than others at gathering these resources together in different, different areas. Things that we have say over. Will you use the things you have stewardship over for the work of God? That's a question we, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we need to ask that question and ask it regularly. Think about the parable of the talents from Matthew 25. Now I realize this is, this is a parable, it's bigger than money, but it also includes it. You have different people who are given different sums. So one gets five talents, this other person gets two talents, and then one gets one talent. And he is called later on a worthless servant, and he's held accountable. And the servants, they, what they do is they take this and they use this wealth to go get other wealth. Not for themselves, but for their king and his purposes. This is how we are to use the things that we are stewarded. All right, let me say also about uh, the way we use wealth. 
Wealth building, according to what the Proverbs say, is a marathon. Think of it as a marathon, not a sprint. So 13.1 says, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. And then from chapter 28, the, trust for, the trustworthy will get a rich reward, but the person who wants to get rich quick will only get into trouble. So wealth building, I just note that it's, it's intentional. It's, it's little steps that you can take slowly over time that make a huge difference in the end. So if you don't think about these things, if you don't have a plan, other people will give you a plan. That's one thing. Uh, the other thing is do the small steps you can that are within your reach and do them now. Just find ways to tighten the belt, find ways to start putting money aside uh, for an emergency fund to begin with. But if, you're, if you haven't planned at all, if, you're, if your idea is that's just going to take care of itself later on, uh, you're setting yourself up for some hardship. You can't base a retirement strategy on lottery tickets and trips to Three Rivers or Seven Feathers or whatever the names of the casinos are around here. Start young and identify sound investments. If you're not young, start where you are now. Identifying some sound investments in ways that you can use your finances. Now, I'm not saying it has to be this fund or this IRA a uh, Roth IRA that grows a tax-free interest or uh, it has to be uh, the stock market or it has to be rental properties or it has to be a business venture of some kind. What, I'm am, what I am saying is because you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you should come up with a plan. Let God help you make that plan. Ask for his wisdom in putting these plans together. Talk to your Talk to your spouse, talk to the Lord, put it all before him, include your family. Make a plan. Learn discipline while you are young. Learn simplicity while you are young. Begin learning generosity while you are young. If you're not young, it's okay, start where you are. Start where you are. So wealth building is a marathon, not a sprint. Let me say a word, too, about uh, legacy and wealth. Uh, legacy and wealth. You can't take it with you. We know that. I mean, we, people have tried. Pharaohs have tried. They put it, surround it, and then uh, throw some of these virgins in there with us just in case and bring the dog. Bring the dog. And let's mummify everyone and... I don't know why I'm thinking this, but I just thought, I've never heard a communion talk that, talked, that brought in Genghis Khan. Well done, Josh. <laughs> People try to take that wealth with you, but we all know you have to let it go. You cannot hold on to that wealth. And it, and it leaves waves after us if we have not planned well with our legacy. If you've not taught your children well, then the resources that you work so hard to accumulate during your life, they will no longer be available for kingdom work. So think about this question. What are the messes that you are leaving behind that others are going to have to deal with? I think that's a good question we should ask. Are you creating an unhealthy dependency 
in the way you use your wealth? Are you leveraging money to manipulate others for selfish reasons? Or are you leveraging money and influence for the glory of God's kingdom and, and his work? This is, I'm just saying this is something we need to be sober about and something we need to be careful about. Some of us, we've had more success in accumulating money and wealth than you've had in your parenting. And you know that all of your accumulated wealth dropped into the laps of your children when you pass. It's just going to allow them to continue in the same dysfunctional, selfish lifestyle that they've been living. In ways that don't honor God and don't do His work. And so I'm not saying you need to go give it all here, all here, all here. I'm saying think about that and make a plan. Glorify God with what you've been entrusted. So in considering your legacy of what you leave behind, if you have had dysfunctional management of money, it can have generational consequences. Uh, If you've modeled generosity to your children, they will learn generosity. If you've never been generous and they've never seen that, they're not going to know how to be generous. If you've modeled, you know, this is just the way it is, everything hand-to-mouth living. And when you get money that comes in, you go out and you have fun and you just blow it. If that's what you've modeled, that's what you're passing on. If you've modeled accumulating debt and using debt to pay for your debt, and then being a slave to debt, your whole it's just eating our paychecks up, that accumulated debt. Or if you've lacked integrity in paying back what you've said you would pay back. Your kids see that too. All of these things have ripples. They create ways. But let me just say, if you failed in some ways, no one's been perfectly successful in all of this, perfectly made good decisions in our stewarding, uh, just own it. Own it and explain, articulate to people you love how you failed and how you want to try to do better and come up with a plan. The Lord will help you with that. Good habits in managing our resources in godly ways, it also creates a legacy, though. Let me just say that. Sin is not the only thing that grows on compound interest. So does righteousness. Acts of righteousness grow on compound interest. Wisdom applied to life, it grows on compound interest. Now, of course, where worldly wisdom and godly wisdom differ is with the question, how am I laying and leveraging everything I have that God has given you? How am I using that and stewarding stewarding that in a responsible way for the sake of God's kingdom? And then we also have to ask the hard questions about what's going on in your own heart. I think that's the difference from, because when I talk about the financial stuff, this is all available. That's all wisdom there. But where it differs is what's going on in my own heart Do I recognize the needs there? And then how am I using what's been entrusted to me to leverage that for the work of the kingdom? The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. 
When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. The ways Christians and disciples of Jesus Christ use resources looks crazy to the world. Fine, you want to give a tithe. Fine, you want to invest in that. Fine. It doesn't make sense. But this is where the wisdom of God comes in. For the disciple of Jesus Christ, we realize that everything we have Everything that passes through our hands in a physical sense in this world, it's all fleeting, it's all passing, and we get to take none of it with us. So how do we leverage that for wealth that is real, that doesn't fade, thieves can't break in and steal it, moth and rust can't destroy it, can't touch it? We feel this reality and we intuit, I think, through the work of the Holy Spirit that we realize in some sense, sometimes maybe I need to let let go a little bit more. Maybe I need to get a little more intentional about what I'm doing and come up with a better plan. But all of that I am doing to glorify God and to invest in what really matters. On... uh, April of 2013, a couple in Northern California stumbled upon one of the most amazing treasure finds in U.S. history. The couple had been walking their dog when they came across a rusty metal can sticking out of the ground on their property a little bit. And they dug it out. And when they looked inside, they thought, is this, is this right? They find gold, found gold coins inside. And so they began to search some more. I think they found 14 different caches on their property, different little tins that had been filled with coins. It was unclear how these gold pieces all ended up there, how they got there. But they were looking at these these gold coins. They were all minted between 1847 and 1894. And uh, they were just hidden throughout the yard, underneath where they put the grass and the lawn in, on the edge of where all this was. Well, this became known as the Saddle Ridge Horde. The couple never wanted their identity be to, to be known, so this story is told through the, uh, the, the authentication companies that took this and, and, and the things that they could disclose. They didn't want their names known because they didn't want a bunch of treasure hunters showing up and digging up their yard. Well, the Saddle Ridge Horde that they discovered, they found 1,400 $20 gold pieces from those, those eras, eras. And uh, they were in near mint condition when they were discovered. Uh, those coins from that stash were valued at no less than $10 million. K 
Can you imagine finding that in your yard? I don't know what they have hidden in Santa Clara, but I'm pretty sure I'm not going to find that. I think that would be an amazing thing to find that kind of treasure. And yet the treasure of what we have in Jesus Christ, it's greater. It's greater than that. And the man of godly wisdom and the woman of godly wisdom, they know that we should do everything we can to leverage all of our resources in this life for the advancement of relationship and the advancement of the kingdom of God and to glorify Him. Because that will last. Whoever hid those gold coins there, laying them aside for a rainy day, they had a secret that passed away with them, didn't they? And their wealth, turns out, was for someone else. Don't get stuck in that place. So we'll continue on in this series, but if these words have uh, struck a chord with you some way this morning, if you need the prayers of this church, if you want to put the Lord on in baptism, of course you have an opportunity to do that. And Let us know. Come forward and talk to me, and we'll see how we can help you. Let's stand and sing together.